Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF, Legal AF Wednesdays with your host, Michael Popak. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And today, Karen and I are going to do three stories that are ripped from the headlines. One, can a federal court judge take steps to stop Marjorie Taylor Greene from being on the ballot for re-election under the 14th Amendment's disqualification clause? Two, what went wrong with the Governor Whitmer of Michigan kidnapping trial, and why did a federal jury let two of them walk, acquitted them, and hung on the additional counts for two others? What happened there? I want to hear it from the former prosecutor, KFA. And three, it was inevitable to happen in the land of SB8 and Handmaid's Tale in Texas, a Texas hospital turned in a woman who used abortion-inducing pills for murder. And she was so indicted by the local sheriff there in Star County, Texas, wherever that is. And a prosecutor put on a cape and put a stop to it. And we're going to talk about that from our former prosecutor's perspective as well. Karen, we got a lot to talk about and a lot of things right in your wheelhouse. Are you excited? I am. And you look so nice tonight in your suit, Popak. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to lead you to believe that it was only for you and the audience, my uh, my double breasted suit. We were going to have, as we announced last week, Robbie Kaplan, uh, lawyer extraordinaire who is litigating the don't say gay constitutional case in the Northern District of Florida. But because, you know, like you and me, she's a practicing attorney, something came up and we're going to postpone it for a week or two. But um, so I dressed up slightly nicer for Robbie. But I, you know, I could do this with you. Just we could just dress nicely every time we do a podcast. Why not? Well, you're also a lawyer by day. So and yeah. lawyers still dress like lawyers yeah. sometimes. Ben Mysalis, your colleague in law and my colleague in the podcast, he looks like he went to his hamper just before he podcasted and put on whatever <laughs> he found that was clean. That, so that's a whole nother approach to podcast. It works. It works. We're looking for audio downloads anyway. So it really doesn't matter what we look like. Let's kick it off. With the 14th Amendment, Article 3 passed literally a year after the end of the Civil War to prevent former members of the Confederacy who who had participated in a rebellion and insurrection against the United States of America from ever holding office again, written into the Constitution. It was ratified a year or two later, and that was it until in 1872, an amnesty law was passed to allow for a certain period of time certain former insurrectionists to come back to the United States and potentially hold office again. Why does all this matter? Because there are at least four elected officials whose um, candidacy, whose eligibility for being on the ballot this spring is being challenged by constitutional uh, uh, and pro-democracy forces. One of them is Marjorie Taylor Greene. One of them is Madison Cawthorn. One of them is Paul Gosar. And they all have similar uh, federal suits filed against them to take them off the ballot, or at least to have their state's election board, usually under the auspices of that state secretary of state, determine eligibility to be on the ballot with reference to Article uh, Article 3 of the 14th Amendment. And of course, all these candidates are like, no, you can't do that. And, and Cawthorn, we'll talk about him too in relation to Marjorie Taylor Greene, actually got a North Carolina Trump-appointed Trump appointed federal judge and former law professor to agree with him that some law in 1872 overrode the U.S. Constitution to allow a free pass to all future insurrectionists of any shape, size, or creed from holding office again. And he got he got this judge to buy this argument hook, line, and sinker. Fortunately, the Fourth, uh, fourth Circuit, uh, which is the Court of Appeals for that region, has probably has something else in mind. But let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her case, she filed in federal court, assigned randomly in the Northern District of Georgia to who? Who was it? You tell me. Oh, OK. Nina Totenberg's sister. 
Oh, so Nina, wow. to- Nina, Nina Totenberg. Yes, Nina Totenberg of NPR Supreme Court fame come from a very famous family. The father's a famous concert violinist. Yeah, Polish Judge Amy Hol- Totenberg. Right. Polish father's a Polish violinist, Holocaust survivor, and had at least two daughters, one of which is a sitting federal judge in the Northern District of Georgia, appointed by Obama on uh, Amy Totenberg, whose sister is Nina Totenberg. So it's a very famous family. So bad news for Marjorie Taylor Greene and her lawyers right off the bat, pulled the wrong judge. And um, why don't you tell the audience what the judge's initial impression was off of a recent hearing and in reference to the Madison Cawthorn ruling and whether she's going to go in that direction or make her own law. Yeah, so I get the impression that in this particular case, uh, Judge Totenberg is going to rule differently than in the Cawthorn case. And it's sort of it, it goes back to what you were talking about, the the, am, the 1872 Civil War uh amnesty provision of the 14th amendment, you know, where they said for a little while, you can look back and people who are in the civil war, you'll have amnesty and you could come back and you can run for office. And this, both cases hinge on whether that law is retroactive or prospective. And in other words, did it apply only to look looking backward at the civil war or does it apply for all times? And it looks like the Cawthorn case and the Cawthorn judge thought it, you know, Read, read it one way. And I think it's not going to go so well for Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think it's going to go. Let me, a different let me way ask you, let me ask your opinion. You have a you have Congress passing. One of the most Herculean tasks Congress can, can do is to pass an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Rarely happens after the first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution. We got other ones later against drinking and prohibition and women's suffrage and all that. But it's very hard and, it's, and, and they don't do it lightly. It's not like they wake up one morning and go, let's amend the Constitution. So they amend the Constitution to put in a disqualification clause applying to all future insurrectionists with very distinct language about traitors and insurrectionists who once swore allegiance to the U.S. Constitution. And then 10 years later or five years later, they pass a law, not, a, not an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, just a law on the books. How how do you think it's even possible for the judge in North Carolina to have found that that law overrode the U.S. Constitution? How did that happen? Well, apparently uh, it's it's (laughs) poorly worded, is my understanding of the law, that it's (laughs) it does leave some room for confusion. But, you know, what was interesting about about sort of doing our research, you know, one one of the things I love about Legal AF and 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 what I love about our podcast is, you know, you read the news and you you sort of follow things, but when we prepare, you really sort of dive deep into you read court decisions, you read statutes, you really sort of look into the things that the news are reporting on. And you know, the 14th amendment is something that it, it's it it has lots of elements to it and and this is only one of the elements and it's certainly one that I didn't know about or I had forgotten about. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it since law school many decades ago. And uh, this this particular provision of the 14th Amendment. But what's so interesting to me is every once in a while, the news takes on certain language, right? And sometimes it has to do with weather, like they'll talk about a bomb cyclone, you know, that's like a new term that comes about and everyone's talking about the bomb cyclone or the polar vortex or, you know, whatever. They come up with words and and with the January 6th uh, insurrection, the word that, that was being used was insurrection. And again, that's just a word, you could, you could call it a riot, you could call it, you know, lots of different things, but the word insurrection came about and really became part of everybody's vocabulary vocabulary and it's how we all refer to it. And and I remember thinking at the time and wondering sort of how did it get that name? How did it get that label? And when you read the 14th Amendment and you look at this particular case and these this line of cases, you see why it's exact. First of all, it is exactly an insurrection, which is defined by the violent uprising against a government. But you see why that language is being used here and why it's being labeled and defined and called what it is, because it absolutely applies to what uh, the 14th Amendment uh, to the Constitution and what was intended to prevent and what that amendment was intended to address was exactly this conduct. So it's- yeah, but was it, if it wasn't that, 
If it's not 800 people attacking the Capitol, breaking in, roaming the hallways with a bloodthirst, looking not, not for just elected capital, try not just looking for elected people, yeah. trying to stop the peaceful transfer oh, yeah. of the president, the, the president yeah. of the United States you're, from one person to another. You're so you're so right. It, as a byproduct of their bloodthirst, they were also <laughs> trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And, and all of them, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who who is the focus of the segment, who said they are patriots just like 1776 and they're just exercising their First Amendment right. You know, there's there's a line in the sand about how far you can go to challenge the government. I'm all about criticizing the U.S. government if you don't agree with it. That's what the press is for. That's what free speech is for. You want to stand out on a street corner or a social media account and you want to criticize Biden policy, foreign policy, domestic policy, social policy. You have you have that right. It stops. Where does it stop? It stops at a, an attempted violent overthrow of the government. So, to, to, you know, I don't know why. Well, the former fitness instructor Marjorie Taylor Greene has never been has never been confused with a constitutional scholar. But you know, for her to say, I don't get it. I don't get what the big. She said two days ago. I don't know if you caught this KFA. She said two days ago, it was just once. She literally said, "Jet like." Hiroshima was just once. Pearl Harbor was just once. The Holocaust. Well, I mean, the Holocaust was not just once, but she literally said, what's the big deal? It just happened once. This this is how their side is trying to reduce what happened and shrink it down so small. The old joke is they can drown it in the bathtub. It's no big deal. It was just a bunch of people. It just got out of hand. It was like a frat party that got out of hand. Except it happened on January 6th when they're trying to certify the election and the electoral count and have Trump uh, declared former president on that day. It's just it's just mind boggling. But let's focus. Let's just wrap wrap it up with with Cawthorn versus Marjorie Taylor Greene. Cawthorn goes to federal court, gets a federal judge to rule in his favor, an African-American federal judge, former law professor and a Trump appointee who. I believe, mis misreads the 1872 amnesty law and what it means. The Fourth Circuit finds that very interesting and has decided to have an, an expedited briefing schedule and an oral argument and hearing about a week or two before the, the primary. So but they didn't they didn't they didn't uh, they didn't vacate or overturn the ruling. So right now, Madison Cawthorn is printed up and on the ballots subject to the fourth. And whatever emergency appeal, if he loses, that he tries. Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think she's got a little more lead time in Georgia. But Totenberg, any moment now, could be when we're done podcasting, is probably going to rule against her and send it back to the state election board. And um, Brad Raffensperger, who's the secretary wow. of state, he he of the phone, the infamous Trump phone yeah. call. Can't we just find five, 15,000, whatever the number was, votes between friends? And um, so he's in charge of that process. And, you know, it's I don't think it's going to be a good day in Georgia for Marjorie Taylor Greene if the board of electors elections is allowed to do their job. I think she might get bounced and then she's going to try a federal appeal to the 11th Circuit, which covers Georgia and then failing that to the Supreme Court. But I'm not sure how all this happens in time for the election. What do you what do you think? Does Marjorie Taylor Greene? Let's get another KFA prediction. Does Marjorie Taylor Greene ultimately get disqualified from the ballot under the Article 3, uh, 14th Amendment? My prediction is yes. She gets disqualified. Uh, Cawthorn doesn't. The circuits disagree. And it goes to the Supreme Court. And it goes in sort of the shadow docket. It goes emergency quickly, uh, just because, as you said, timing wise, all of this is happening in real time. That, that's and where now, I see uh, this going. I agree with you. I like that setup. And then it gets to a six to three supermajority right wing Supreme Court, even with, well, Katanji won't be there. Katanji Brown Jackson won't be there yet. It'll still be Breyer, the, the last burning I, I embers bet it's not six of to Breyer. Three. I bet it's five to four. I think you the think? chief justice, I think the chief judge, I, I, he, he impresses me with his wanting to 
maintain the integrity of the, the Supreme Court. I say he I think he votes. I think he votes with the four. I think he makes it four yeah. by four. So so but they lose, but they lose five, four. Right. Yes. And she goes back on the ballot. I, I used to agree with you a lot on the on the Roberts court. I think if he ever really wanted to do public uh, the public uh, uh, a service and he wanted to preserve his legacy at this point, he would resign while Biden is still in office, allowing Biden to pick a replacement for the chief justice. I think he's not going to. Yeah, he's not. He's his not career do is that. in tatters. His career is in tatters. He's not going to do that. But I do think I I do believe he really does still care about the integrity of the court and that the and that it has some semblance of uh, just respect. And so that's that's what I think. Okay, I hope I hope you're right. We're going to we're going to follow. And now moving on, what the F what the legal AF happened in the northern hinterland of Michigan in federal court when a jury listening to three weeks of testimony about four individuals who who participated in a plot to kidnap and harm through violent means the governor of Michigan over her COVID policies, of all things. How did two walk out the front door free people and two got hung? And we'll talk about the hung jury. What went Wrong. I got one thing I want to say before the what went wrong part. I, I yes, I did not watch three weeks of this trial. There were there were parts that I was able to follow, but the jury was presented with evidence that these gentlemen, with two co-conspirators who pled guilty already, who testified against them, bought uh, night vision goggles, built a model of the of the governor's uh, vacation cabin to practice extracting her from it right? Bought explosives and practiced with it. And the only reason this whole kidnapping plot was foiled, and this was the testimony, is that the FBI had them meet where they thought they were going to be buying more explosives and military gear to wear, and they got arrested instead. Even if that's just the part that got presented to the jury, how did anybody go free? Karen, what do you think? So this is a huge blow for the federal government. I mean, huge. This is a the, the, you don't recover from this. The, the prosecutors who tried and lost this case so publicly, uh, they they're, they're going to remember this for the rest of the rest of time. It's hard to lose a case, but it's hard to lose a case like this. You, you look at the just everything you just said, but you also just look at the pictures, the photographs of these these gentlemen. <laughs> that I mean, alone. <laughs> they're central. They're central casting. Scary. <laughs> it's everything you've ever sort of been. You know, you're sort but, of afraid of. But, but but no, no to to Manhattan people like you and me, but not to a jury of rural northern Michigan. They look like their Perhaps. peers. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, so this is a this is a blow, not just to the individual prosecutors who tried this case, but to the Department of Justice in general. They've been trying ever, ever since 9-11, uh, and terrorism, they've, they've really tried to pivot towards what they call domestic uh, domestic terrorism and these these sort of domestic terrorism groups. And, you know, they're they're um, mostly all white and they're, they're these kind of scary people who want to uh, do bad things. Let's just leave it at that. And so this is a big test case for them. You know, it, it had all of the all of their tricks. You know, they infiltrate them. They have FBI agents who are undercover. They photograph it all. They videotape it all. They have, so there's nothing there. There's almost no um, question of fact for the jury in a case like this. You know, sometimes when you present a case, you have witnesses who testify and, and they tell you what happened in, in a case like this. The, the government records almost every possible thing so that there is no question of fact. It's you don't have to rely on did he say this or did he say that? You can see it for yourselves. And this is sort of the playbook that the government goes by in, in not just these kinds of cases, but but really almost any uh, long term investigation. But this was a big blow because this really is going to call into question their methods and how they do things. And, and to answer your question, sort of what happened, I think here the, the jury thought that the government was over 
overly aggressive. You know, the, the defense attorneys in this case used the recordings to their benefit and said uh, th that's proof that this was all led by the FBI. It was proof that this was all coming from them the whole time because they recorded it. They did it. And, you know, the guys, the defendants, they said, look, we, we're just free speech, you know, First Amendment and Second Amendment, you know, First Amendment free speech. We just like to blow off steam. We hate the governor. We hate, you know, what she's doing. We hate mask mandates. We hate COVID. And the, the wonderful, beautiful First Amendment of the United States of America allows us to not only dislike our government, but to speak loudly and to say as many hate filled, horrible things as we want about it. And the Second Amendment to our Constitution allows us to have guns and buy guns and all these things that that we went and bought. And so, yeah, we like to get drunk, sit by the fire and shoot our guns up into the air and talk about how much we hate the government. And the but the really the bottom line is that's all we were doing. And then you have these government informants, whether they're FBI agents or these other turncoats, you know, that are that are sort of, you know, the, these guys playing both sides of the aisle. They're the ones suggesting let's kidnap the governor. Let's, you know, do this. Let's do that. And, you know, half of them, half the evidence was like, well, we didn't even know what we were going to do with her once we got her. And maybe we were going to do this with her, or do that with her. And, and the fact that it didn't have any specifics and it, the fact that it didn't have any details kind of plays into the defense that, we were just talking. We were just kind of fantasizing and making it all up. And the jury just didn't like it. The jury did not like the, the government. Um, the fact that a lot of this seemed to have been um, either suggested by the government or kind of directed by the government. And they kind of smacked him down, oh. you know, plus there were some missteps in the in the investigation as well. And and a couple of the FBI agents got into some trouble. One got arrested for domestic violence and another one was trying to use this to start a business and yeah, moonlighting you know, so all, on the side. Yeah, during exactly. The case. So, exactly. So all uh, of that I, com look. comes out at trial. And at the end yeah. of the day, the government still has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. You still have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and your evidence has to have integrity. It has to have you know, it has to be trustworthy. And sometimes the, the jury didn't necessarily find them innocent, but the jury found them that found that they were not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I can't I can't say beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't the, the FBI agent's idea or suggestion or, you know, that or, or I'm not going to I'm not going to um, I'm not going to reward the government for putting on testimony and evidence of, of, of informants that are compromised or FBI agents that are less than perfect. Do I agree with this? No. Am I disappointed? Incredibly disappointed. If I were the prosecutor in this case, I, I I'm devastated on their behalf, but I, I think no, they that's have, what they happened. have another, they have another shot, right? They have two, if they, if they two, take it. I mean, well, well, they are, right, let, let me, let me back it. Let me ask you a couple of questions. One, we had talked about this case and all of the problems with the informants and the uh, co-conspirators and there being a little bit hair on the dog, hair on the dog related to them, even before they testified. We had seen this in the pre-trial yeah. motions that were filed. And you and we spoke about this is a this is this is a complicated case to present because of these of these things. Here, so here's one question I have for you. And 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 to dovetail on that or to pick up on that. One of the quotes from one of the defense attorneys, of, of course, being very happy, he said, I don't think the jury understood all of it, but they got enough of it to realize basically that my clients had been framed. I mean, this is what he basically said, I guess. So that suggests to me that the government overcomplicated the presentation of the evidence, that the jury then, because the, the issues were so complicated and the competing evidence in cross-examination was so confusing, that they latched onto things that human nature latches onto, which is the human quality of it. Who did they like? Who didn't they like? I think they did not like the informants. I think they did not like the FBI people at all. Whatever the defense did, they did it masterfully. And they liked, you know, I hate to say it, but they liked these, these goofballs as they reduced them down to. The, the only one that testified, you know, against his own interest, against his Fifth Amendment privilege, he walked out the front door. So he, he's the one that testified. He went scot-free. Just bye-bye. Um, which suggests to me that, but here's a question for you. You've got four of them 
plus two co-conspirators who pled guilty that are testifying against them, plus some cooperating and some CIs, confidential informants and all that. Do you have to put the whole case on against all four at the same time? And why did they? Why didn't they just do it one at a time, use one as a bellwether to figure out their case a little bit better, and then try? Why try all four? What, what, do you think that was a mistake? In hindsight, it probably was. I mean, they indicted them all together, probably thinking it's the same evidence. It's the same. You know, if, if it's all if it's all wrapped up in the same evidence and the same testimony and the same everything, every time you testify, you're creating another every time you have a trial, you're creating another record of potential inconsistent testimony that then could be used on cross-examination at the next trial. So, you know, for various reasons, you join defendants together. And especially if it's the same evidence that's going to be presented against all of them, they have similar charges, they have similar commonality in, in, in the evidence being presented. I, I'm, I would have actually indicted them together. I, I, I can't, I mean, like I said, looking back, perhaps you would have, you would not have, but at the time it made all the sense in the world. And I would have made that same choice. Um, but they, they, but then, the, they, then they, then they became by extension, the Michigan four, you yeah, know, exactly. like the Chicago seven. And then they got yeah. their fan base and people they are like, he looks like my brother-in-law and you know, all that in jury selection. But I think the jury was overwhelmingly um, white, <laughs> you know, just like them. Um, I think if the case was tried maybe in another region of Michigan that didn't have such hard feelings about the governor, you know, and I, I feel sorry for Whitmer. She had some very tragic comments afterwards, like, why am I even governor? Why am I even doing this? You know, she it was some soul searching on her part not to be vindicated. And I mean, she wasn't on trial, but not to be vindicated that, you know, and I and I hate to think that there's a a female component to this. I mean, if a male governor, there was a plot to kidnap a male governor with explosives and 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 all this other stuff. But, you know, she's not well liked among big pockets of Michigan. Um, and I think being a female is not helping her in being liked there. I'm hoping that didn't play into the jury. I'd like to see the jury composition before I make a further comment about it. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, so, you know, yeah. it, it'll just it'll just be very interesting to see if they choose to retry the two because, you know, they were the two that were left were hung. Some of the charges were hung and some of the charges were acquitted. So it, it'll be a much streamlined, much more streamlined, more simple, simplified case. And let's see if they'll if they'll try it again. Now, now here's a question. The ones that tried the case and lost. How soon after that do they leave the office? <laughs> They might want to try them again. <laughs> I, you know, it's look, this is, as I say to the, the thing about being a trial lawyer is, is somebody comes in second a hundred percent of the time. Right. So, and it hurts and it's a blow no matter who, which side you're on, it's hard, but that's the profession we've chosen. And yeah. it's, you, you gotta, you gotta pick up your, you know, your crayons and, you know, go back and you got, you got to do your next one. It's hard. It's hard though. It's a blow. It's a big blow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a big blow for the credibility of the office and a big blow for the, for the governor. I mean, does it send the signal that if you're, if you're a militia person and you're just shooting the shit in the backyard, even if it reaches the point of being a plot against the government that you might have a shot at going to trial and being acquitted. You know, it's interesting. Unfortunately, that is the unintended consequence of these verdicts, because I think historically and 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 this is mostly anecdotal, but I, I think historically juries do not like when the government overreaches. They don't. The entrapment, if there is a whiff of entrapment, juries don't like it. I think that's what and happened even here, if right? Even if, yeah, yeah, even if it's not legal entrapment, even if, you, you know, juries don't like when you've got you know, what they would consider just your average person who's living their life and, you know, and they're just, they're not looking to commit a crime. They're not looking to do anything wrong. And you've got the government come along and sort of suggest things. And yes, you're, you know, I, I, anyone could come along and suggest things to me. I'm not going to fall for it, but, but you could see people who aren't, who aren't me and who aren't you, who might be more vulnerable to suggestion and 
as soon as they get led down that path by someone who is in the government juries do not like that. And it's yeah. not, it, you gotta be really careful. And they punish and they punish and that's what the they jury punish. did here. Yep. Yeah. And to use your phrase, thank God there are people that are not you and not me because without them, we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad this was a, this was like an accelerated version. Um, we were leaving a little time for our interview, but I'm glad that we were able to cover, you know, three, three really interesting topics. I think one of the takeaways from reading the live chat that you're always on with me and with Ben Marsalis, the co-anchor um, and founder of the show with me on the weekends my takeaway from that in the Twitter feeds and all is that in a way that I hadn't anticipated before is that people really find what we do, what we do on this show with Ben and what did I do on the weekend to be an important part of their lives because they were hearing about these concepts and they're sort of floating around in the transom of their mind. But in their view, nobody was taking the time to explain it to them in a way that fit and made sense the way that, the three of us are able to do. And I didn't know that when I signed up for this gig that it was going to turn out to be that, but I'm so honored to be a part of it. And I know you are too. I can just tell by the way you participate, um, you know, so dutifully on the Wednesday and Saturday live chats and everyone's, and you have, I know you are shy about it because, you know, you think from an egotistical standpoint, it shouldn't be you. So it wasn't you. I saw it and I said it. So I've got Popakians and you have... K fans. K fans. <laughs> I was like, how oh is God, that so... not perfect? And how do we not think of that? Well, it's so good. Can we so... can we talk about the Texas Heartbeat Act, please? And the, and are, the, the te- are we <laughs> more? No, I, no. We're going to talk about. I thought we we're talking about the. Um, oh, I'll the, do whatever the... you want. What What do you want to talk about? Star County and the we poor did, woman. We we did, didn't we? No. We're doing the third one now. Salty, yes, get ready did, for an edit. We did Marjorie oh, Taylor oh, Greene. Oh, oh, you're right. <laughs> you're making Salty, me like question. You're making me question like. Oh, we no, did the intro. Like, All right, we did the intro. You're making me like. You're making right. me second guess myself. All right, you know? here we go. You ready? I got very excited. Two, two down. This is like this is like when Tom Brady. We should leave this in the pot. This is like when Tom Brady thought it was fourth down and it was third down and he trotted off the field. Like, oh, hey, guys, thank you. They're like, no, it's not. It's third down. Same thing. I thought we did this story. All right, here yeah, we go. I don't, I don't think you I don't think you edit it out. We're real people. We make mistakes. All right. OK, <laughs> let's go to the third topic. That I'm not Popak pretending thought. to be anything that yeah. I'm not. Yeah, it stays in the pot. You know, the salty will appreciate it. It's less editing. Okay, so here's the third topic for third segment for tonight that I, Popak, thought we'd already covered because I did it in the intro. We're going to talk about this. But now I have to change my whole demeanor because this, this story, the story is serious. So we have uh, Lizette Herrera, a young woman in Texas by the border of Texas and Mexico, who went to a hospital after using abortion pills and had a negative reaction to them because she wanted to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. And she lives in the Handmaid's Tale state of Texas with its six week prohibition on abortion and a US Supreme Court that has refused to stay SB8 and its bounty laws until it makes its decision, I guess, in the summer in Jackson versus Mississippi about Mississippi's 15 week law. And we'll have to just sit on the edge of our seats and fill in the blank of everything else until the Supreme Court none of which are having any more children, <laughs> decides uh, reproductive rights in same, America. Same, by the way. Same. Huh? <laughs> I, said, I said same, by the way. Stays in the pod. Okay. Now, so, so we have poor Lizette Herrera, who goes to a medical professional, public health professional. This is, this is the setup for this. that It's going to get Karen and me, our dander up. Because this, she's got case, a, get, yeah. a medical condition. And the hospital reports her to the sheriff's office because she's because for murder or reports her that she used abortion pills to end her own pregnancy, which I will tell everybody, I didn't know this before, but even Texas's own criminal law, its own penal law, does not criminalize the mother of an unborn child terminating a pregnancy. But that didn't that didn't stop the sheriff issuing an indictment to indict her for causing the death of an individual by self 
induced abortion, better known as murder. Let's leave it at that. So it then goes to the local prosecutor in Stark County, Gocha Allen Ramirez, who takes one, looks at the facts. And what does she do? Former prosecutor KFA. So I have very mixed feelings about this prosecutor. I am going to hold my judgment until I think that the, the DA, uh, Gocha Ramirez of Star County, is going to file a motion to dismiss, I think, on Monday. I'd like to see what that motion says. And until then, I'm not ready to say that the DA is wearing a cape here. And, and all right. Tell me doing, why. What, what, what have you right read? Thing. What have you heard? Tell so, me. So the DA did dismiss the case and issued a statement saying, you know, basically protecting, the, you know, coming out and saying that don't get mad at the sheriff. The sheriff did what they were supposed to do. They have a duty to investigate, but I have prosecutorial discretion. Uh, the DA has taken an oath to do justice and this has taken a toll. So I'm not going to prosecute this case as if as if this DA is, you know, is 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 wearing a cape, as, as you suggested. Um, but I want to see what the DA actually has to say, because the DA here, first of all, is not used. Prosecutorial discretion is what a lot of DAs use when they choose not to bring a case because it's unfair or it's unjust. In other words, it's technically illegal, but I'm not going to bring the case. I'm going to use my discretion, which is something every prosecutor in this country has, because in the interest of justice or for some other reason, I don't think this case should be brought. This case this DA dismissed this case because this DA had to dismiss this case. Why? Because there is no crime of murder for a self-managed abortion in this matter. And so this even DA, in Texas, that's not a crime, even in Texas. So in fact, the law in Texas actually exempts people from being criminally charged. This is a civil matter. So, you know, the other question is, I think this this DA charged her and then is dismissing it, moving to dismiss it. Why did this DA charge it in the first place? So let's see, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, kind of, first of all, the DA didn't come out and criticize uh, the law, didn't criticize the hospital, didn't say the hospital, you're violating federal and state HIPAA laws and doctor patient privilege. And it's not a crime. What happened to the Hippocratic oath? I go in... I mean, I don't know. You, you, you're the prosecutor on this team. I go in with a gunshot wound. The first thing that the, the hospital does is report me to the police for a possible crime while they're treating me. Do they are they obligated to do that? Yes. <laughs> so okay. well. All right. No, no I want to take necessarily. It, to the the gun- it, de- it depends. It depends. So right. let's look. Let, let me let me give you a couple of of um, examples of where they're obligated to call the yeah, police. That, so, that's helpful so for, to our followers. Yeah. So so first of all, let's just start with the premise. You don't you want you want to encourage people to seek treatment, right? You want to encourage good, people. Good. To, premise. Right. So you want to encourage people to to seek medical treatment and to speak freely to your doctor. So that's what these privileges and these laws and these privacy laws are designed to protect. It's designed to go in and say, yes, I took this drug and, you know, I'm dying at this moment and it might be an illegal drug, but at least now they'll know what to treat you with because you were honest about it, you know, or yes, I, I did X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's designed for communi- for open communication, but there still are certain things that, uh, that doctors and hospitals are required to, um, to report. So for example, if, you know, you, you go in and they're in the middle of, of cutting your, your clothes so that they can, you know, open you up, they find a gun in your pocket or they find illegal drugs in your pocket. They will have to call the police who will have to come and take that. Or say if there's um, suspected child abuse, you know, in those types of instances, they, they are required to um, they're man, they're called mandatory reporters. So there are certain instances that doctors are required to call to call the police. But in in a, in a matter, you know, in this particular instance, it's I don't see it even coming close. And if this DA wanted to, this DA could have really called out the hospitals and said, this is not what the law says. 
This is not illegal. It is not a crime. And the, this DA is not saying that. So let me uh, that that's just the kind of nuanced approach and and um, analysis that I've come to love with you as my co-host, because when you when when, you, when we were texting each other leading up to the show, like a few days ago, we saw the you know, the headline. We were like, good, great. Just what should have been done. And then when you really get under the hood. And that's 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 what our people come to love about this show. Well, so we'll just see to, what the motion to dismiss says. Maybe well, maybe right. I'll say good. It's a good you know. Maybe yeah. this is just the next week the press release. But, yeah. But just just to lay out three 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 last points here: penal code, Title Five, Chapter Nineteen of the Texas Penal Code, under criminal homicide, Section Nineteen Point Oh Six says expressly that it is not applicable. It is not criminal homicide to cause the death of an unborn child if committed by the mother. So, so that is the criminal code in Texas. So there's no crime. Even SB8, as diabolical and immoral as it is, does not penalize the mother of the child, the abortion provider, yes. Others that assist and facilitate, yes, but not the mother. So what is the law when when the sheriff typed up his indictment? That's how it worked here, apparently. Typed up his indictment and put murder, unborn human, whatever they wrote. What did they? I like to see that. What did they cite as the criminal violation, the criminal statute? It sounds like Texas is just in a lather over abortion and like, the hospital calls the sheriff, the sheriff swings down. And all you have is this poor 23 year old woman, you know, who's just going to the hospital because she lawfully took abortion drugs that had an adverse impact. And she's like bleeding. That's not a crime. So you're right. I, I thought when I first read everything, but you've really, you've really framed it properly for us to watch the next steps. And we'll be able to report that back next, hopefully next Wednesday or so on the next edition of Legal AF. Have we covered all of our segments? <laughs> yes, we have. We have okay. covered them. We, we have, have come to them, the end. <laughs> Go ahead, Karen. <laughs> no, no, I just, I just wanted to say one other thing, which is um, I've learned so much, you know, I, I, I'm lucky to live in New York, right? Where I, you take for granted things like the ability to, you know, you freedom of, you know, freedom of to love, to marry who you want, to love who you want, to have whatever identity you want to have, to have an abortion if you want to, you know, there's so many freedoms that you take for, for granted um, by living in New York. And, you know, what's really happening is, and, and this case, I think really shows it because as you were saying, you've got it, you've got a sheriff who clearly wants to punish women for, for having an abortion. And I think a DA who doesn't think it's crazy, you know, who doesn't think yeah. it's insane. I think what we're seeing here is, you know, at the end of the day, in a couple of months, the Supreme Court is going to take up you know, is going to take up this question in, in Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, the Jackson women's health. And, and either they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade or, you know, they're going to allow the, the ban to stand, you know, in that particular case and, and push, push this back down to the states. And you're going to see, and what's happening is you've got states, I, I think I read somewhere that there have been over 500 restrictions that have been introduced in, in 41, uh, 41 states, you know, since um, in, in anticipation of the Supreme Court ruling in 90 days, because they're getting ready. They're getting ready for the Supreme Court to say to push it down to the states. And I think we're going to live in a world it, where half the states you can have an abortion and half the states you can't. It, and it's a race to the bottom. You know, it's a race to the bottom. Oklahoma wants to one up Texas. You know, I feel like we're playing a perverse game of name that tune. You say six weeks. We say zero weeks. Oklahoma is going to ban outright. Abortion. Um, and you're right. Got states who are who are who are, you know, you've got some states that left abortion on the book. Like it was it was illegal to have an abortion and they left it on the books because Roe versus Wade yeah. said you have, a, a you know, a right constitutional to have, right, you know, a constitutional mm -hmm. right. So they just left it on the books and it was never enforced. So you've got some states that if Roe is overturned, they'll just revert back to these laws that are on the, these ancient laws that are on the books. So you've got yeah. some states that are getting them off the books, right? The progressive states are saying, let's get this off the books, you know, and then you've got other 
states that are reverting to that. And then you've got no, some states who don't don't have it on the books and they're introducing new it, laws. It's going to be 27 to 23. So it's going to be like 27 states are going to allow abortion. 23 states aren't and all the ones we can name right now. And then you're going to have it looks like uh, the private sector, some companies at great risk to them and their brand have stepped forward already and said they will pay the freight for their employees to fly to the state that's necessary to have the abortion. Um, big companies. Yeah, there's going to be um, a whole cottage industry that pops up, oh, yeah. uh, I think, where you know Planned Parenthood is going to pivot to and other organizations are going to pivot to a model where they transport women to states. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a whole a whole cottage industry. I almost, of, I almost said abortion tourism, but that's a terrible phrase. Yeah, so it's not, no, but not, it's yeah, but, yeah. but it, it's a reality, right? Yeah. It's rea- you know, yeah. abortion. The one thing we've if, if we have to learn from history, the one thing you're going to learn, we, we can learn whether it was coat hangers, you know, that they used to use or now it's, you know, it's these 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 abortion pills. People who want to have an abortion aren't going to stop having an abortion. Uh, you know, if, if it's an unwanted pregnancy, it's an unwanted pregnancy. And you're not going to stop people from doing it just because it's illegal. So well, either you provide safe pas- passage for them to go to a state where they can do it, exactly. or you're going to create a situation where women are going yeah. to um, have serious, significant health consequences because they don't seek medical uh, met proper medical care or medical attention for fear of prosecution or civil action or retribution or, or, or whatever happens. And people should read, you know, the original Roe versus Wade and all of its progeny, which gives you the parade of horribles and the litany of reasons, terrible, terrible reasons why medically safe, properly provided government regulated abortions is the is the best alternative to letting people go into back alleys or, Ill, or illegal yes. abortionists. You know, you think people are you think people are out there giving, uh, you know, without medical license, like, you know, Botox and operations yeah. in their garage. Wait till you see what happens when 27 states or whatever it is are going to ban abortion. Have you have you read the book or watched The Handmaid's Tale? Well, I, I was fortunate that when The Handmaid's Tale first came out, and they made the first movie about The Handmaid's Tale back in the 1990s. They filmed part of it at Duke while I was at law school. So I got to watch. Now, at the time, it wasn't what it became with the Hulu series. The, is it Hulu? Uh, the Hulu series of The Handmaid's Tale. The original movie, which was not that popular, but I thought it was well done. I got to read the book then because um, it literally was on our campus filming back in 1990. 1989. So yeah, I've read. Yes, yeah, so I read the book when it came out, yeah. and you know, it, at the time, it just seemed like one of these, you know, dystopian. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. It's just like right. hey, that's just whatever. Why? Why is my teacher making me read this? But it yeah. was good. But it was just seemed so so foreign. And then when the I think it's is it Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is when that I think it's Hulu. when the series yeah. when the series came out, I started watching it, and it's been a couple of years now, and it's, it's yeah. phenomenal. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. It still seemed far-fetched and crazy. And as time has progressed, our country has moved closer and closer to the scenario depicted in The Handmaid's Tale. And it is terrifying. It is utterly terrifying. I've talked about in the past, and we'll sort of end it on this one. Um, You know, this is, you know, uh, truth is stranger than fiction and art imitating life and life imitating art. One of the reasons it's been reported that um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus ended Veep after seven seasons after, is because after Trump got in, all of their storylines, which seemed just slightly askew and far-fetched, this is before the insurrection, just lost its resonance because uh, with the American people culturally, because they had sort of a whack job in Trump in the office. And so it lost its sort of meaning. She says, we couldn't outdo what was already being done in real time in the White House. It was yeah, no truth longer is funny. Than fiction. Yeah. yeah. And she and they literally ended about a year or two later earlier than they wanted to, which I hated because I really liked the show. And The Handmaid's Tale is the opposite. It's getting deeper resonance 
with the American people because but it's of, terrifying. Because, it's terrifying. Oh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It, the whole thing's terrifying. And there, there's there's one more thing I will sure. say about The Handmaid's Tale, and then we can end. <laughs> but by the way, when we first started talking about this midweek edition, we were like, oh, we'll do 20 minutes. And then we're like, maybe we'll do 25 minutes. Now we're encroaching on the weekend sort of. All right. You know, all right. The, 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 the let's not stretch version. it longer than we have to. I know. But really, really <laughs> quick. There's one one more thing about The Handmaid's Tale. Um, there was a, a scene that I found so profound where it was the it was the end of one of the the seasons. I can't remember which one. And somebody escapes to Canada and Canada is this wonderful place, you know, and, and where they're receiving, where they're receiving these refugees, right. Who, yeah. who are political asylum seekers in Canada. And what it was welcome to Canada. Here's some medical care that you will have. Here's some money that you can have for until you get on your feet. Here's therapy. Here's housing. Here's food. Here's a hug. Here's everything. Like, and I had chills and was crying. And I was like, this is how we have to treat people who are coming to this country, who are fleeing oppression and fleeing these horrific situations. And, and I know I'm, 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 I'm looking at, you know, at, at a television show to say, you know, but, but in that show, when you're, when you're, you're feeling the feeling of those characters who are fleeing this oppressive situation and you see how they're just being sort of embraced and rescued by this welcoming country, it really hit home that that's how we have to be treating people at the border and the way we, we lock them up and send them back and how we treat them is really shameful. And I, I hope we do a whole, a whole segment on, on that at some point when it's appropriate. Yeah, let, Let's, let's do it. Let's do it about our, our undignified immigration policy and border policies uh, that are still left over from the Trump days and Biden, perhaps not moving fast enough to change them and make them progressive and reflective of, um, of our society. I'll, I'll give a personal example of what you're talking about. We can either treat people terribly in the immigration process and make them not long to be American citizens and have them hide in the shadows and operate there. Or we could treat them with dignity and let them the way my great grandparents came to this country in 1900, my grandfather in 1908. And even my girlfriend, who when you compare what happened to her immigration experience to all the horror stories, and and I see the difference. When was the last time you went to a baseball game or a sporting event and they played the national anthem and you cried? My girlfriend cries at the national anthem, although she's only been a U.S. citizen for eight years because she got she literally won the green card lottery. She was sitting in her home country. She got on a computer, filled out a form and she won. And she is so in love with this country and so patriotic and, and thankful for being here, just like my grandparents, just like my great grandparents. And what are we doing to everybody else who's not lucky enough to win the green card lottery yeah. and who's black and brown and, and isn't Terrible. from a white, a, a predominantly white country? It's it's not it's not good. It's, it's shameful. We'll t- we will. I'll take you up on it. We'll talk about it at another podcast. But tonight <laughs> we've ended. Finally, I think we did all three, didn't we? Good. All right. <laughs> You know, I'm older than you are. You got to keep an eye on me. I may wander yeah, you know off what? one day but, but during I, the podcast. But I, start, but I was second guessing myself. I'm like, <laughs> did we do it? And I forgot. Oh, my I God. Ad- I inadvertently gaslighted you. Karen, we did it. We did it already. All right. But, you know, keep an eye on me. If I start wandering off, like, where's grandpa going? Bring me back and let, let me finish the let me finish the podcast with you. And I and we will see a shout out to the legal efforts the Popakians, the Midas Mighty, to the K-Fans, and we will see you next Wednesday right here. So, so long from Michael Popak and... AFA, Karen Friedman-Agnifilo, great to see you. All right, you too, we'll see you next week.